I find myself throughout the year getting antsy to have the harp brought back to the sanctuary so that we can hear it played. And, uh, <clears throat> well, really, I am just amazed at how talented this congregate congregation is. Even on the Sunday mornings whenever we sing together and I hear your voices um, behind me, it's pretty spectacular. And uh, it's a real privilege to be a part of a church that's worshiping with our voices every morning whenever we are united and, and, and to hear us, that ringing out. Well, last week we began our Christmas series and or, or our Christmas sermon series and we said that it was going to be an unconventional Christmas series. And it was because we started all the way back in the book of Genesis. And really where we were looking uh, was, or what we've anchored ourselves in, is the major themes that come out around Christmas time, namely hope, peace, joy, and love. And uh, what we did last week was we jumped back so that we could look at what that hope was originated in. The first promise that God gave us that a Messiah would come, or that one would come who would ultimately conquer the rebellion that existed during the fall. This week, I want to stay down that same vein of thought. Rather than looking at hope this week, I'd like to look at the word peace. Like hope, uh, we have somewhat of an obstacle that we need to overcome, and that is that the meaning behind the word peace has been somewhat corrupted and diminished by the way that we use it in our world. There's a conflict between the way that the world uses the word peace and the way that it is intended in the Bible. So really to approach this, approach this topic with any form of success, we first have to make sure we know what we're talking about. What does peace mean in the Bible? When I speak of peace from a worldly understanding, this word is more comparable to the way that a physicist would describe heat or light. You see, in reality, there is no such thing as cold. And everyone said, I disagree. This morning, it was very cold. But think about it for a moment. There's no quantifiable way that you could measure coldness. How cold is it? Very cold. It's not quantifiable. We might say the temperature or say what temperature it is outside, but we have to realize temperature is a measurement of heat. So what we're actually talking about when we say something is cold is we're saying that it is lacking heat. In the same way, when we talk about darkness, there is no way to measure darkness. If we say that something is dark, what we're actually saying is that it is lacking light. There is an absence of light. And I say all of this to point out that the way that the world uses the word peace is not in a substantive way. They, they use it to describe the absence of conflict. Well, we are at peace because we're not at war. Well, we are at peace because we stay out of each other's way. There's peace in the office because he stays at his desk and I stay at my desk. There's peace at home. Because I go to work, I come home, I go to bed, and I pretend I'm not even there. Peace in the Bible 
is not likened to light or cold, but it's something substantive. It's measurable and tangible. When we talk about peace in the Bible, we need to understand that we are not describing the absence of something, but we are actually describing something that has substance, that stands alone, that is not a passive descriptor of something that is lacking, but is something active and is present. And this morning, as we move along in our sermon, I will aim to explore and elaborate on what that substance is. Suppose then... It would make sense at this point to move to our text. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, where again we will look at another foretelling of Jesus coming into this world. And by the way, if you're interested, Isaiah was written between 600 and 700 years before Jesus was born. As we move there, I'll tell you that I'd like to read this morning from verse in chapter 9 all the way through verse 7, but our focus will remain just on verse 6. And so I read the entire section of Scripture just so that we can get the context and the bigger picture of what's happening and we can use that to interpret verse 6. But our focus this morning will just be on verse 6 and so we won't be discussing all of the details in this passage. Okay, so hopefully you've turned there. Let's pray and we'll read from God's Word. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning, this time to gather and worship. God, I thank you for the way that this church worships you. And God, I pray that you would, if there is any hardness in our hearts this morning, that you would help to remove that, that we would be uh, supple and ready to receive your word. Lord, I pray that you would guide us into understanding this morning and that you would give us the instruction that we need. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. And the Bible says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with a joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian." For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle to molt, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a beautiful passage this morning. And it's one that I think we're familiar with at Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't want to just be familiar with this verse or this passage. I want to understand what it says. 
and the significance that it carries as we celebrate this time of year, the birth of a Savior and the coming of a Messiah, everything that was sacrificed and given so that we can celebrate this day. I want to understand it. And to do that, we can split verse 6 into really two sections. The first part tells us what Jesus is going to do or what the coming Messiah is coming to do and to establish. The second part, the part that gives us the list of names or ways that he's referred to, actually tells us how he's going to do it. So we'll look at the first piece. What is this Messiah, this child that is being born, the son that is coming? What is he going to do? He's coming to establish a government that will rest on his shoulders. In verse 7, it makes it clear that this is referring more specifically to the throne of David that he will come and, and claim. What's Jesus going to do? I think to understand the significance of this, we have to understand who Isaiah was originally writing to when they prophesied this passage. He was writing, obviously, to Israel. And if you've been around uh, for any length of time, on Sunday evenings just a couple of weeks ago, we were studying the book of Hosea. It might be helpful to know that Isaiah is a contemporary of Hosea, writing during the same time, writing before the Babylonian captivity, before the Assyrian captivity, during the time when the nation was divided into two kingdoms. And he's writing to a people who are desperately in need of returning to their God. And if we understand this picture, we've covered a lot of ground in biblical history. Last week, looking at Genesis at the fall, and now everything that's happened in between, we kind of have to have some picture of what's happened. God has established a nation and a kingdom. He's delivered them out of slavery. They've become their own nation. And over and over again, if we read the Bible and we look at the Old Testament with any sort of um, interest, we find a people that return to rebellion. They continue to return to rebellion, and every once in a while, they'll see their ways and they'll call back out to God. The problem in Isaiah's day and Hosea's day or this this passage of time where we are reading from these prophets is that the people are looking for a way to repent, looking for a way to restore themselves, and they keep going to the wrong place. <coughs> Isaiah the prophet is speaking, wouldn't it make sense for a people who are in desperate need of something to go to their God for it? Instead of returning to your God, you return to idols. You return to false worship. You go to oracles and, and, and you seek answers from, from the dead. All these sorts of strange things. Among them, maybe you seek for real answers or, or help from yourself. Maybe if you can just invest in yourself enough, you'll, you'll find the answers that you need. And the way that Isaiah approaches this and the reason why we read this entire section of Scripture, if you notice in verse 2, there's this picture of those who are walking in darkness. The people are walking in darkness. They're blind. They can't see where they're going, 
and they have enough sense among them to know that they need light, that they need restoration, but they're going to all the wrong places to find it. Maybe you've seen this around you from time to time or maybe even experienced it. When you're walking and you know that there's an emptiness or a brokenness or something is absence in your life, after all, there is no such thing as darkness, only the absence of light. There's an absence of something inside of you, and so you try and find a way to fill it. And if you haven't experienced, I'm positive, all of you have seen someone in your lives doing this, chasing after something to fill a void that is inside of them, realizing that there is darkness and looking after light to restore it. Believe it or not, Oftentimes in the Bible, we find a picture of God leading people to a place where they don't know what to do, where they don't know how to handle a situation so that God can show them what He can do. This is certainly the case for the nation at the time that Isaiah wrote this. You don't know what to do. You keep turning to the wrong places. But there will come a day when those who walked in darkness will see a great light. When those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. The same promise is available to all of us here this morning. All of those friends and colleagues that we spend time with who are obviously walking in darkness have an absence of something inside of them and are seeking desperately to find something to fill it. That same light is available to them. So when Isaiah wrote this, it's important for us to understand the way that the original hearers or the original audience would have perceived it. That's the original context. The way that they would have hung on to this verse and clung on to it in the days that the Assyrians conquered Israel or the Babylonians conquered Judah. During the disbursement of the Assyrians and and then the relocation during the Babylonian captivity. Everything that came the way that they would have hung on to what Isaiah was telling them in this passage and what God was saying to them through his prophet. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Well, this was a message of restoration. That despite everything the nation was about to go through, there was a day coming when there would be a prospective ruler who would come and be the king of kings. He would have all authority over every nation, every place on earth. He would be the king of kings. All government under his authority. That's really something to marvel at. This is, of course, what we have to look forward to. And all the time between captivity and the rebuilding and then the later Roman occupation, there's a day coming when a king will be born. This is, after all, the hope that we celebrate at Christmas and that we spent some time last week discussing. 
But more than that, this is a proclamation of peace. And we cannot get away from this, especially in this passage. The people needed to be at peace with God. The captivities and the disbursements are all an effect or a consequence of God's judgment against a people for their trespasses against Him. That's what the prophets make clear. They had an issue. They were not at peace with God, and they were not at peace with their neighbors. But a king would come, and he would make peace on both fronts. Secondly, I think we've discussed in some part uh, this already, but Jesus is coming or the Messiah is coming not just to bring peace or not just to bring the authority of a government that will establish these things, but it is also a promise of the illumination of the people who walked in darkness. They would be illuminated to the truth. Let's explore that for a moment, just just a moment to understand that the people needed peace with God. What they really needed, as verse tells us, is they needed light. They needed real understanding. But this is the problem, I think, in most Christian circles, is that people do not simply need to celebrate traditions and everything so that they're familiar with them, but they need real understanding of what they're celebrating. And this is something that doesn't come about by coming to church regularly and being faithful, but this comes about by actively being involved in discipleship. And church is just a small part of that. Real illumination comes from being active and participating in what the Bible says. By surrendering and no longer looking to the wrong places for light, no longer going to oracles to seek answers from the dead, or, or making idols and worshiping them, or, or falsely thinking that somewhat or whatever that is wrong with you can be overcome by just investing in yourself. The absence or the emptiness that the world experiences isn't a consequence of not investing in themselves enough. It's a consequence of not investing in their relationship with God. All right, then. This Messiah coming, it's bringing a lot. It's a, he's coming to establish a government. This is a proclamation of peace and a promise to bring illumination to the people. I said the second part of this passage answers the question, how is he going to do it? We know what he's going to do when he comes. How is he going to do it? The Bible says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We'll take those just one at a time then. Wonderful Counselor. I don't know if you realize this, but most world leaders don't get away with leading nations or companies or other things or whatever they're leading on their own. Most of them are wise enough to realize that they need to surround themselves with others who can be experts in particular areas and they can be counselors to them. (coughs) Wise people have counselors. And some of these people might even come to you and ask you to provide them with advice, provide them with direction. I think it's a privilege whenever people come to me. 
I also think it's a mark of their foolishness. The problem is, whenever they do this, I have to remind them, okay, I can provide counsel or wisdom or whatever it is that you're after, but you have to realize I'm going to somebody else. And you can actually just go straight to the source. Any wisdom or insight that I provide, well, I'm getting my wisdom or insight from my wonderful counselor. And you don't need me to stand in the middle. You can go directly to my wonderful counselor. This is something that can actually take care of itself. The counselor. Providing wisdom and answers to the people's needs. There's an adjective there, though. It says that he's wonderful. And I've kind of in this, this theme so far in this series, I've made sure to define the word hope, and now we've defined the word peace, or we're working on defining the word peace. Wonderful might be another word that we need to define, because it's similar to awesome. And I don't know if you realize this, but originally the word awesome wasn't meant to describe everything under the sun. I mean, that's how we use it now. Everything's awesome. Check out my awesome shoes. Check out my awesome watch. Check out my awesome hairdo. It's awesome. I have some news to break. Your shoes are not awesome. They're not even close. Your video game is not awesome. It's not even close. Things are wonderful. Everything's going wonderfully. Well, I hope that it is, but I also hope you know what you're saying. You see, the word wonderful originally meant that whatever you were describing had so much wonder it could only come from God. When we read about this in the Bible and we look at people performing wonders, it is a testament that what they were doing came about through the power of God. It is wonderful. It can only come from God. The Messiah is coming to be a wonderful counselor. His insight and wisdom is truly wondrous. Marveling. Mesmerizing. Not only does he have advice for this plan or things that he's coming, but if we look at the next word, mighty God, he has the power to execute all of these plans. Jesus' name, as the angels declared, is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And here he is, mighty God. All the power and authority of heaven standing behind him to accomplish the task that he has before him to set up this government, to provide us advice. Everything that he says and promises, not only is it true, but it's reliable because there is no doubt of any insecurity or false proposition. It will be accomplished because he is mighty God. And this third one, everlasting Father. I think this one has been somewhat confusing to some people because we hear Father and we immediately think of the Trinity. Obviously, we're talking about the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. But make no mistakes. If you read this passage in context, we're describing an individual. And I don't mean that in the Trinitarian sense. We're describing the Messiah. 
A child is born, to us a son is given, his name shall be called Everlasting Father. I've tripped some of you up this morning. I just called Jesus Everlasting Father. Here's what Isaiah is saying. He will be like a father to his people. He will be like a father to his people. Guiding them and directing them as counselor. Protecting them and providing for them as mighty God. Disciplining them. Giving them gifts. Establishing them. And showing them what it means to love. Here comes. We herald in the season where we celebrate Advent. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. He makes peace. This is, after all, if we go back to the beginning of what we were looking at of the peoples in Isaiah's day, this is what they desperately needed. Peace. This is how we're going to make peace with a God who is condemning us. Rightly so. This is what we need. I don't know the best way to really create a picture in our minds of the peace that is established by the Savior coming to earth. But when we think of the state of man in relationship with God, even in all of the Old Testament promises that God provided and the protections that He gave to His people, they were all rooted and founded in the fact that one day there would be substantive peace established. When God made promises to Abraham, they were rooted in the fact that one day God would provide ultimate peace. Sure, There were some conditional promises that were dependent on the faithfulness of man, that he would watch over us and protect us and establish and all these different things. And we see the consequences in Isaiah's day when the Assyrians are about to come and wreck everything and the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar and all that. And then there's this captivity and everything else that happens. I mean, exciting times. But never once is there doubt that God is coming to establish this government that will be ruled over by a prince of peace. When we celebrate Christmas and we talk about that word hope, we're obviously looking back that it was established long ago and all the way until today, we can look back and we can say what God promised was accomplished. And everything that 
He's already promised that's yet to be accomplished. I know it's going to happen because, look, he's already taken care of some of it. I have no doubt because his name is Mighty God that he has the power and authority to accomplish these things. He's going to establish peace, which I said is not just simply the the absence of enmity or the absence of conflict. That's only a part of it. Think about the human condition born into conflict with God. Not only is he going to eradicate that conflict, but this isn't a just go your own ways parting relationship. This is a coming together, being reunited in peace. This isn't just avoiding conflict, but this is rectifying it. Jesus comes to establish peace. I want to talk to you about something this morning that I think is, well, it's troubling. Christians who go around in this world carrying with them a sense of guilt. I feel guilty for this or I feel guilty for that. I don't know if you see the problem with that, but if you are walking around with guilt, you are probably missing the biggest understanding that you can take away from the gospel message and the Christmas story. (coughs) Jesus came to establish peace. When someone asks where my sin is, I can say with confidence, I don't know. It's gone and hidden. God promised never to return to it. Why do Christians keep returning to it? My friends, I I want you to experience real peace. I want you to know that what Christ has established in His advent and His crucifixion is the carrying away of all guilt that we would ever need. Now sure, if there's something that you feel guilty about that you haven't repented of, you haven't really turned away from it, well, I hope you feel awful and guilty about that. But I pray desperately that the peace of God, if you've repented from it, gives you freedom. It gives you new license. This is what the Bible describes in our own resurrection as we are reborn through the Messiah's sacrifice, that we are made a new creation. You should be able to experience that peace. Let me ask one final question this morning. The peace that we celebrate at Christmas is so starkly different than the peace that the world understands, and I am so thankful for that. Why are you grateful for this? When we say that peace from this world's perspective is actually describing the absence of conflict, why does it matter to you that the Bible uses the word peace differently? Sure, 
There's peace with God, which is describing an absence of conflict and enmity, but it's something more than that because it's active. It's a relationship with Him. If we follow the New Testament and the way that the Bible instructs us to live life with one another, all those one another statements that we find buried in all the epistles and everywhere else, we're reminded that Peace that is established with Christ is not just with God, but it's also peace with one another. Peace with one another. Guided by the Holy Spirit, we're able to have community and fellowship. And we shouldn't forget that part of the descriptor for the fruit of the Spirit includes peace. Jesus even says, blessed be the peacemakers. To have peace with one another. I want us to understand this in such a way that peace with one another doesn't just describe an absence of conflict, but it describes community and fellowship. That if there's any division or some issue that causes us to want to go our separate ways, that we understand from a biblical definition that we are chasing reconciliation that matches that of God's reconciliation with us. I don't want to just go separate ways. I want to have peace. I want to be friends. I want to have community. And finally, I'm thankful because there is peace with ourselves. Being made a new creation and renewed, we can be at peace with ourselves. This morning, there is a selfish part of me that wishes I have described peace in a way that you have never heard before. But I know the reality or the possibility of that being true is far from none. This is probably the 100 billionth trillionth time you've ever heard real peace described as something more than the absence of conflict. And it's a message that we keep having to come to because we haven't allowed ourselves to understand it yet. As we reflect this morning and have a time of invitation, as we have a time of uh, asking this question and pursuing it, you have an opportunity to understand what this peace means. Really turn to it and chase after it. Put your teeth into it. And if you don't understand it yet, I hope you feel prompted or encouraged to at this whatever time this week to go and understand it more. I have a great resource I'd like to recommend for understanding peace. It's called the Bible. The Advent season tells us everything that we need to know about it. And I pray that you'd be challenged to do that. And as we sing a song of invitation, I pray that you would reflect on that question, that you'd ponder this meaning, and that you would seek after peace with God, with each other, and with yourself.
Please stand with us as we prepare to sing.